And please turn a second time with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.26 is our text this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, just wanted to announce something that we announced last week and it's in your worship guide. Uh, but next Sunday evening from 5.30 to 7 here in this room, we'll be having a meeting. It's not a members meeting. It's for anybody who wants to come where we talk about uh, our plans for the new building. We're going to talk to you about money. We've got a better handle on what's needed now. Uh, the land, the escrow is closed. It's ours. And so we're excited about that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And the question all of you have is, when? Well, it depends on giving. Uh, so that's really in your hands and ours as well. Um, but we could maybe uh, shed some more light than we've been able to in a while on the happenings and the hopes. So uh, I trust many of you got the letter that we sent out uh, this week talking about the importance of uh, a home for us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, rather than just a couple hours on a Sunday morning. Uh, but anybody who would like to come would be invited to that. The reason it's not just a typical member meeting, it's not just closed to members and it's open to everybody is because some of you are still thinking through joining this church formally. We understand that and you'd like to know, hey, what about the property and the land, things like that. So we'd invite you to that next Sunday, 5.30 to 7 here in this room. All right, we're in Ecclesiastes, our second message uh, as we go through this book. Uh, this will be the longest passage, the longest section that we'll have as we go through the book, I think. Um, but we'll uh, see how it forms a, a unit, and so it's important for us to take it together as we consider it. Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.26, please follow along as I read. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this, is also, that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, and there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet... I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? 
And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I've entitled this message, The Pursuit. We see the pursuit of Solomon. He pursued everything to satisfy his heart, and it didn't satisfy And he writes this, God writes this to us so that we would go down these roads for a little bit with Solomon, walk down the road of pleasure-seeking, knowledge-seeking, walk down these roads and consider, are we striving after these things? And really, by Solomon's words, which are God's words, preaching to ourself the folly of striving after these things for ultimate satisfaction, consider a treadmill one of the most depressing of all exercise pieces of equipment. <laughs> I don't know anybody who likes the treadmill. You might be thinking, I like the treadmill. Yeah, you watch TV and you listen to things as you are on the treadmill to distract yourself from the treadmill. <laughs> so I think you like exercising while watching TV. Um, okay, anyway, that's a, a, a topic of discussion for another time. All right, but consider the treadmill. We run or walk in the treadmill, and afterwards we say, I ran three miles. No, you didn't. No, you did the the work of running three miles, but you stayed in one spot for the whole time. That's what it's like to pursue satisfaction from the things of the world. You will work at it, you will tire yourself, and you won't be any closer to the satisfaction. The treadmill is a good example for the life that Solomon lived and what he's trying to teach us now at the end of his life. This is what it's like to look for satisfaction from the things of this world. Being on a treadmill when your goal is off in the distance. And you work, you do the work, but you never achieve the goal. In this passage, Solomon gives us four common pursuits. They're common to all of us. Four common pursuits that fail to satisfy Four common pursuits that fail to satisfy. And then we'll have a fifth point, which is really the conclusion or the application at the end of this section. So first, first common pursuit that fails to satisfy is wisdom. Now you can write down wisdom, but you could also uh, add some maybe synonyms to it to maybe get a better understanding of it. Wisdom, knowledge, information. This is Solomon saying, I've sought after all the information out there the wisdom out there, how to live, what's right, what's wrong, what's happening here, what's happening there. In my search for wisdom, I was trying to get a hold of all the information out there and then satisfy my heart that I knew it all. I understood things. And as we'll see, that didn't satisfy. This is verses, or chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, Solomon's search for wisdom or knowledge or information. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart. He's very intentional about this. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He wanted to learn about things that are done under heaven, things that are done on this earth. What's happening here? What's happening there? If we were 
at Solomon's house in 21st century times and today's times, we would see PhDs on the wall. He's learned about this. He's learned about that. Multiple degrees, multiple books being read. We'd see in Solomon's study not just one television, but a host of televisions. He's watching Fox News. He's watching MSNBC. He's watching it all, trying to get a grasp on all of it. We'd see his computer open with all the blogs. He wants to know it all. And lining all the walls are books. He's looking for information. And if he just knows what's going on, that would satisfy his heart. He continues in verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. I've seen it all. I've learned it all. And God evidently has worked it into the fabric of this world that if I search for satisfaction through information and knowledge and wisdom, I will be frustrated. God has worked that into the world. God will not let us be satisfied by simply knowing more. And Solomon recognizes that this search for information, this search for knowledge is vanity and striving after wind. doesn't satisfy. And then he gives a proverb here in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What's he saying there? I've tried to find out all the information out there, all the information about this world, and I can't with that information, make straight the crooked. Things are just going to stay crooked no matter how much I know. No matter how many blogs I read, it's not going to fix anything. No matter how many blog articles I forward to all my family members and church members, it's not going to fix anything. It's not giving me the satisfaction. Verse 16, or he continues in 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. You can't sort everything out. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me before me in Jerusalem, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this is also striving after wind. And then another proverb, verse 18, For in much wisdom is much vexation. The more he knew, the more his heart was troubled. You know that. Watch cable news for 15 minutes. Oh, man, this is depressing. Now watch it for five hours and 15 minutes. More depressing. The more you know, the more your heart is troubled. Well, I'm going to read about what's going on here and there in our country and throughout the world. And I'm going to give myself to reading and reading and reading and reading and listening and listening and listening to TV and to podcasts and to podcasts and to podcasts. The end result of that isn't you being calm and happy in the Lord. That's not. The end result is anger and frustration and bringing other people into it. It's what happens to us. And the last few years have been a case study in this passage from Ecclesiastes. The more we know, the more we're troubled. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So this first common thing that we often pursue for, pursue for satisfaction is wisdom, information, knowledge, and it doesn't satisfy. It actually troubles us. This week, the seminary that I graduated from, Master's Seminary, uh, they've, got, they've got a blog, and one of the authors posted a blog article, and here's the title of it, and it fits perfectly with Solomon's pursuit here. Stop watching the news. Your discipleship depends on it. Rather strong statement. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with watching a little bit of news, but be careful, and this is the author's aim, Listen to what he says. We end, up devoted more, we end up devoting more of our time and attention to staying up to date. We dread falling behind or lacking awareness of the latest event deemed newsworthy by our editorial overlords. We constantly check the news. We mindlessly swipe, up, swipe open our phones first thing in the morning to get the top stories of the day. 
We watch hour-long news shows in the evening and listen to a current events podcast on the run or in the car. These habits add up to the giving away of one of our most precious resources, our attention. So friends, what has your attention? What has your attention? Think of all that you listen to, and let me ask, what has your attention? Is it the cares of the world, or is it the things of God's kingdom? What has your attention? Nothing wrong with having a basic understanding of things that are happening out there. But trying to find out all the information under the sun that you can is a frustrating endeavor. Leads to sorrow. So have a basic understanding so you can pray with information. So you can witness to people. So you can speak up when appropriate. But refuse to buy into the lie that what you need is more information about what's happening under the sun. Give your attention to Scripture, please. Give your attention to theology. Read good books. Learn from people that you can benefit from and, people, and learn from people that you can then benefit. Take your attention back. Take your attention back. Focus it on the kingdom of God, not on the kingdoms of this world, which will fail. His kingdom endures forever. I've got friends that are hunters, some of you. Get an animal, open it up, you get out the meat, but then you don't just toss it away. No, no, you use every part of that animal. Well, what are you going to do with the intestines? Intestine soup. What are you going to do with the hide? I'm going to make a blanket. I mean, you use everything. Friends, attack your Bible that way. I want to know all I can. I want to learn all I can about my God. Read theology. Read good books. I would love to serve you in this way. Email me. Ask me for recommendations. Books. Podcasts. Not about the current events. You already listened to 39 of those. A podcast that can dive you into God's Word so that you're constantly giving your attention to that. And sometimes I think that there's a thought, well, I mean, there's, how much can you really say about this? I mean, I think I know stuff. No, there's so much to learn about our God, so much to know. Give your attention to the things of the Lord. Solomon gave his attention to everything under the sun, and his heart was troubled. We can often do this. Give our attention to Every article, every newscast, every podcast, that's what we talk about at the store. That's what we talk about in Bible study for some reason. We just talk about the things of this world. All the while, our hearts are troubled, not settled, angered, worried, fearful. We can't do that. Let's learn from Solomon. There's a good God who rules over this earth, and he says a lot about himself, about the future, about the present, about the past. Friend, be consumed with his word. Be consumed with what he teaches. Be consumed with his kingdom. Be consumed with that. There is a pursuit that we engage in. We're going to try to find out all we can about what's going on. And we're going to report back to everyone else. Do you know that this is happening? Yes. I knew stuff like that would happen. Of course. Aren't you incensed? Yes but I'd rather focus on the solution and how to rescue people, how to guide them into everlasting life, into an eternal kingdom. So let's be careful about what we give our attention to. Let's be careful about our search for all wisdom under the sun, all knowledge under the sun, all information under the sun. There's a second pursuit that is common to us. It's the pursuit of pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So now Solomon's going to walk us out into his backyard. We're going we're to see the gardens, all right? He's going to walk us back. He's probably wearing a silk bathrobe. That's just how I picture him. <laughs> Monogram slippers, walking us out to the back, looking at all these gardens. As we walk back and he's going to give us a tour, there's going to be friends of his gathered there, you know, drinking wine, eating cheese, listening to the comedian of the day, laughing. He's going to show us all the pleasure right here. I said in my heart, chapter 2, verse 1, 
come now, I will test you with pleasure. So I've gone the information route, now let's go after pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He tried to, to have friends around him that were joking. He, he hired the comedians. He, he's looking for joy coming from laughter. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So, wine will make me feel better. I searched with, uh, sorry, uh, and how to lay, lay hold on folly so I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So, he's saying, I'm going after laughter, I'm going after wine, I'm going after cheering myself up, going after all of it. Then he starts walking us from the back deck where the friends are laughing, and he starts walking us down to, again, the gardens. I made great works, built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves. He had plenty of employees hired to do all of this work for him, to please him. And I had slaves who were born in my house. This went on through generations. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So he's got the pools, he's got the trees, he's got the fruit, he's got all the employees for generations to continue building, maintaining, so that he would be pleased. He's got all the money to pay for it all and more, more than any provinces, not just more than other people, more than other groups of people. He's got it all. And then he hires the best singers, brings them in to entertain him. Then he goes after foreign women, and he's got sexual pleasure with as many people as he wants. Some of the things that he goes after for pleasure are not inherently sinful in and of themselves. Some of them are. He's tried sinful pleasures, and listen, he's tried non-sinful pleasures, things that are okay to enjoy, but he set them up to try to get full enjoyment, final enjoyment, final satisfaction from, and it didn't work. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, also, my wisdom remained with me. He, he did this all with wisdom, thinking wisely. You hear of some wealthy people, maybe athletes or celebrities, who come into a bunch of money and then blow it, really foolish. Uh, that was in Solomon. Wise business deals. Knew what he was doing as he amassed all of this pleasure. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is my reward for all my toil. Right here at the end of verse 10, you can almost see Solomon as he's given us this tour, grabs the lapels of his bathrobe and goes, and smiles. And then that satisfied smile goes away immediately. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Notice that this account of Solomon seeking pleasure doesn't end with verse 10. Ah, <sighs> finally. It ends with verse 11. No, I'm still troubled. This still doesn't satisfy. Pleasure in things under the sun does not satisfy according to the scriptures, according to the wisest man who ever lived, according to God himself. And we know that this, is, this isn't just something that Solomon struggled with. This has been preserved for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy what the last days will be like. We are in those last days. Paul, his letter at the end of his life sent to his disciple Timothy says this, 
In the last days, men will be, and he lists a number of characteristics of men and women, and he says this, in the last days, men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In the last days, you could say, people won't have learned from Ecclesiastes. I hope we will. There's a reason we're listening to Solomon walk through all the pleasures and tell us that he was dissatisfied. It's so that we would not be ultimately satisfied with them. We've seen famous comedians who had everything. Women, wealth, success. We've seen them take their own lives. We've seen the same with business executives. We've seen athletes crash and burn who had all the money that they could ever want and more. We've seen lottery winners buy everything they wanted and then destroy themselves. And it's not just the people out there that do that. Go to the wealthy neighborhoods, the wealthiest neighborhoods in the Quad Cities, and you will find big houses full of loneliness, sorrow, depression, sadness. We keep trying. I know in my head that it doesn't work, but let me have a go at it. It doesn't work. So, friend, be careful. Christian, be careful of what you want. There's nothing wrong with having things. There's something very wrong for things having you. The property you want, the vehicle you want, the house you want, the sexual relationships that you want will not ultimately satisfy. And because often we've wanted them way too much, when they don't satisfy, it brings us a great crash, a great sorrow, great heartbreak. We see here Solomon's example. He's being honest about his life. He's being honest about his pursuits that didn't satisfy. I think this is a part of discipleship. Friends, I would encourage you, if you've tried things like this, I've tried to find my satisfaction in pleasure, in knowledge, whatever it may be, and you failed and you know Solomon's right. That does not ultimately lead to satisfaction. Tell someone else that. Tell a younger believer that. Tell someone in your Bible study that. Hey, I see you talking a lot about this or that, excited about a lot of these things. Be careful. I've been down that road. Be careful. Solomon's doing that for us. There's a third thing that's common to men and women that Solomon aimed for, that we aim at. The third thing is non-foolishness. Now I know what you're all thinking. Couldn't you have just said wisdom? No, I, I couldn't. He's not talking here about the search for wisdom. He already did that earlier on, right, in our first point. Here is the idea where Solomon's saying, I looked at dumb people out there and said, I'm not going to be like that. So so he's going after not being dumb, not being a fool. That's what he's going after. Verse 12 of chapter 2. So I turned to wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So this is Solomon saying, I've searched out all wisdom. God, we know in 1 Kings 3, gave him all the wisdom he needed to rule Israel rightly. And Solomon here is saying, I've got wisdom. I know what madness and folly are. I I know what it all is. What's the person like that's going to come after me? Are they going to be wise? Are they going to be foolish? What will my successor be like? Then in verse 13, then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than folly. It is better to be wise in this world than to be foolish. And he's right about that. And this is what he concluded. As there is more gain in light than in darkness, you get more things. It tends to work out better for you if you're wise with your money than if you're foolish with your money. That's what Solomon's saying. Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The fool's just making all sorts of bad decisions, doesn't know where he's going, why he's going there. The wise person's looking out, staying informed, and it's generally working out for him. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them, the wise and the fool. What's that event? Death. 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. It's as if Solomon was looking around at all the dumb people in the world going, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Hey, this is working out for me. It's not working for them. It's working for me. And then all of a sudden one day he thought, hold on a second. I saw a fool die yesterday and a wise person die today. The end is the same for both of them. There can't be final satisfaction just being wise and not foolish. I said in my heart, this is also vanity. Verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. We saw that in chapter one last week. They're not remembered. The foolish person who dies isn't remembered after a couple generations. Guess what? Either is the wise person. They're just forgotten. People are forgotten. Sure, we might know some names and facts about them, and occasionally there's a biography of the great men and women, but most people don't know them. Forgotten. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, verse 16, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. Now, obviously, we know that living wisely is a better thing to do. We can study that in different places and different passages. See the book of Proverbs. And Solomon even says here, that's true. It generally goes better in life. But he's trying to show at the end of life, just trying to be wise and not dumb, not a fool, not stupid, doesn't get you anywhere better than the fool. Under the sun, both people end up in the same place, dead. I remember seeing kids in high school who were just dum-dums. I mean, just, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Why are you doing that to that property? Why are you stealing? Like, what are you doing? I also remember kids in school, I was one of them, who arrogantly just simply looked down on those people. Well, guess what? The dum-dums and the people who look down on the dum-dums all die. They all end up in the same spot. You can watch the news, you can see people on the side of the road, and you can roll your eyes, oh, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to do that. Great. Nothing wrong with that. But they will lie down one day in death, and you will lie down one day in death. Your ultimate satisfaction can't come from just being wise in this world. I'm, I'm not going to be stupid in this life. No problem. That's okay. But don't think that that gets you anything that ultimately satisfies you in the end. You'll die, they'll die. This is what Solomon's saying. He's just being very real. Some of you might have grown up saying or might be saying this as you are growing up. I refuse to be like my mom who was foolish in so many ways. I refuse to be like my dad who was foolish in so many ways. Okay, if you don't want to to embody the weaknesses that your parents had, okay, that's fine. They were foolish with their time, with their money, with their relationships. No problem. Be wise with your money, time, and relationships. That's okay. But just realize the final satisfaction doesn't come because at the end you go, see where this has gotten me? You're going to die, just like mom and dad did. I mean, kind of a downer of a thought, but very real and very truthful, and very honest. We can thank Solomon for this. There's a fourth pursuit, last pursuit. Earnings, earnings from your work, from your toil. Okay, well, at the end of all my toil, I've worked, I'm about to die, maybe these earnings will all be used the way I want them and everything will work out okay. Nope, a great grandkid's gonna get them and he's gonna be foolish with them. Sorry, welcome to church, Sunday morning. Sorry for the lack of encouragement. (laughs) Solomon looks at his toil and wonders where his earnings and riches will end up. There's something about 
our life where we like to control what our money does. If I put it here, it's going to lead to this. If I put it here, it's going to lead to that. We're in control. It's all going to work out. When we die and we've got a dollar to our name that is now out of our control, and it might not go toward what we want it to go toward. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Solomon says, I've worked, I've used wisdom with my resources, and someone else is going to manage all of those resources. Maybe the next king, maybe his next son, whoever it is. This also is vanity. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. This depressed him. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. So all the days that he's been working, the the 40 years he was in his career or whatever it may be, we work and it's hard, it's troublesome. Office politics, fluctuating economic markets. It's troublesome. It's tiring. Sometimes we don't even sleep well because of all of it. But there's a hope that at the end of the day, whatever I amass is going to be put to good use. Maybe not. Might not be. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The work days have been hard for years. The nights are often sleepless. And then we leave our resources to someone else and who knows what they will do with them. So do not try to find your ultimate satisfaction in the fact that all your wealth will be used rightly when you're gone. You may plan to leave your wealth with scholarship funds, leaving money to grandkids, and those will not guarantee that all of these dollars are used wisely. We can't bank on that. Solomon's told us about four things that he pursued that are common to us as well. Wisdom or knowledge, pleasure, not being stupid, non-foolishness, and earnings. Can't think that all those things working out rightly will ultimately satisfy you. So now what do we do? I told you last week, I've got a word picture in my head, an illustration in my head when when I read this book. It's starts with this, our eyes looking at the world, okay, pleasure's going to work out for me. Uh, my earnings, I'm going to earn a bunch and then it's going to go to good use even when I'm gone. Uh, I'm not going to be stupid. This is going to work out. I'm going to be wise about all these things. Or I'm going to know about this world and that will satisfy me because I'll know and understand everything. And this book is used to say, nope, None of that will satisfy you. And what do we do? Our heads drop in despair. Like you hear Solomon's do. You hear him repeatedly saying, this is vanity. (laughs) This isn't working out like I thought I wanted it to. And so our heads start by looking out in hope, eyes glistening. And then Solomon just preaches real life to us and our heads go down like this. That's not the final goal of Ecclesiastes. That is the first goal but there's a greater goal coming. The greater goal of Ecclesiastes is as our head is down in despair, we look up, not again at the things of the world, but we look up and realize there's something that's not under the sun where my hope needs to be. Something over the sun, if you will. Someone beyond the sun. That's why the word creator is used so often in Ecclesiastes when it talks about God. So our eyes start off looking at the world for satisfaction. They're brought low by Solomon's realism. And then we pick our heads up past the world up to heaven and we realize that's where my satisfaction must be. 
in my Creator, in my God. And so we see in this last paragraph the application for us. So what do we do when none of these four things are satisfying to us? What do we do? Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, hold on a second. Andrew, you've been telling us that eating and drinking and work and all of these things don't satisfy us. Now you and Solomon are telling us we should find an enjoyment in those things. What is going on here? And you're right. Joy is not possible when you try to find your ultimate satisfaction in things under the sun. But joy is possible in those things when they are not your pursuit of ultimate satisfaction. That's the point. So if you take eating and drinking and vacations and money and 401ks and inheritance to people who will use it rightly, you take all of those things and you place them on a throne and start worshiping them, you will not be satisfied. But if you take them and you see them as gifts from your heavenly Father who is on the throne, as just simply gifts to you to enjoy, then the call for, from Solomon is enjoy them. Enjoy the life that God's given you. Take pleasure in Thanksgiving dinner. Take pleasure in a walk down the street after it rains and the sun is setting. Take pleasure in those things. They will not ultimately satisfy you, but they are good gifts from God. There is nothing better for a person that he should, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. I love how David Gibson says it. He says this, Life in God's world is a gift not gain. Remember that word gain in chapter one? Where's my gain? Where's my ultimate happiness? Where's my ultimate satisfaction? Life in this world is not gain, but it is a gift from God. It's a gift. And that's what Solomon's telling us at the end of this passage. He says at the end of verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God. This is so good. God's mentioned two times in this passage. One at the beginning where he says, it's God's plan that we would be frustrated by our pursuits of happiness in things under the sun. And then here he says, there's something else from the hand of God, from the goodness of God that he's given us. It's to enjoy life under the sun. Not to be satisfied ultimately with it, but just to enjoy his good gifts. This is from God. This also I saw as a gift from God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And then he says this, verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So when your heart is satisfied with God, when you are living to, to please him, when there's a sweet fellowship between you and God, he gives you wisdom, he gives you knowledge, he gives you joy. You can enjoy a sub sandwich with turkey and pepper jack cheese and just the right amount of mayo and mustard. You can enjoy that. I would. Enjoy it. Enjoy your children. Enjoy going on a vacation. Enjoy the beach. Enjoy Prescott. I mean, enjoy Prescott. These are gifts from God that He gives to His children. But to the sinner, He's given the business of gathering and collecting people who are defined by sin, unbelievers in this world, what are they doing in this world? Trying to get all they can, collect all they can. Only to give it to the one who pleases God. Now, isn't this a great reversal here? Remember the last point? I've worked hard, I've toiled, I've amassed this wealth, and I'm going to leave it to someone after me. I don't know what they're going to do with it. At the end, Solomon says, God's going to take all the wealth, all the things amassed by those who have rebelled against him, and he's going to take all the wealth out of their hands one day and give it to his children and say, you rule over this. You enjoy these things. What a reversal. And the key here is living in fellowship with God, pleasing him, being satisfied with him. 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. For the sinner, for the sinner who's going to lose everything that he's gathered and collected, vanity and striving after wind. We know that this is true, that all wealth and resources, blessings will ultimately be given to God's people one day. They're not in our hands right now. Some of them are, some of them aren't. The world's gathering and collecting as they're alienated from God. But one day in the future, in the new kingdom, new heavens, new earth, one day in the future, we will have everything at our disposal. Rule over it, manage it, enjoy it, Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The earth will be ours. So when you see your neighbor get the fifth new boat that they've got, and they are haters of God, hopefully they will become lovers of God. But if they don't, you can look out and say, that boat's going to be mine one day. And I will enjoy it to the glory of God. It will not be an idol. I will praise my God for what he's given me. So friend, enjoy gifts from God as simply gifts. Not as your ultimate capital G gain, okay? Enjoy God's gifts to you. You've been given a house. Be careful about constantly needing more houses or better houses. As soon as you get into a house, oh, I'm so satisfied. A year later, what if we sold this and got bigger? Be careful. There are reasons to try to get a bigger house. There are also reasons not to. Be careful of your heart, okay? You've been given a job. Be careful about the constant need for more, 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 more. You've been given a wonderful vacation. Enjoy it as a means of resting for the next work that's to be done in this life that God's given us. Be careful of not turning that vacation that you enjoyed into something that, into a means of pursuing a vacation for the next 50 years. Wouldn't it be great if we could do this the rest of our life? No, it wouldn't be. It would not be. It wouldn't satisfy. Be careful about where your heart can bring you, your flesh can bring you. Now, I'm about to end here, but My, over the last few weeks, my main prayer for you has not been that our church, my brothers and sisters, would be simply dissatisfied with the things of the world as our final pursuit. That, that's, not, that's part of my prayer. The greater prayer is that we'd be more and more satisfied with God. Solomon here says, again at the end of verse 24, the, the fact that we can enjoy life is from the hand of God. So we enjoy the wine and the cheese and the hikes and the vacations and the kids and the grandchildren. Enjoy them. They come from the hand of God, but trace those gifts back to his hand, back to his character. Again, my main prayer has been not that you just look at the world and go, okay, I get it. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. And then walk away. No, no, I get it. It doesn't ultimately satisfy but closeness with you does, Father. And that's what I want. That's what I, as one of your pastors, want for you. And let me say this, you will not be dissatisfied with the world unless you are satisfied with God. You can't just say, I won't be satisfied with the world and then kind of be in a neutral place. The way to not be satisfied with the world ultimately is by being ultimately satisfied with your God who created you to be in a relationship with him. Saved people, not just to be officially saved, not going to hell. No, he saved you to adopt you as his child. This is a relationally good, benevolent God. We must be satisfied with him. And I want to show this to you, okay? Because wine can be so prevalent in Solomon's writings, and because he talks about pleasing himself with wine, but then later on realizing that I, I should just take pleasure in food and drink as just a gift from God, not the ultimate pursuit. 
I want to show you that God's a good God. God's a giver of good gifts. If you're here and you're not a Christian, one of the things that non-Christians believe about God is something that's not true. They believe that God is a killjoy. Doesn't want us to be happy. Doesn't want us to have fun. I mean, how miserable it must be to be a follower of God. That is not what the Bible teaches about God. He's a giver of good gifts. The biggest gift, the greatest gift is himself. But he gives good gifts. And the Bible teaches that. And I want you to see that. Turn to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. Isaiah is pointing the people of God to a future. And he's talking about the future reign of the Messiah. What will be true of the Messiah? What will he be like? Oh, probably a killjoy, probably not wanting us to have any fun. It's probably going to be, you know, not very enjoyable to be one of his followers. Wrong. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. I mean, this is good wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This is the character of God, my friend. For his people, he wants to give them good things, good gifts. It's one of the characteristics of the Messiah's reign. You will enjoy his reign. Verse 7, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. What's the covering? Death. The veil that is spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Why do I show you that passage? Because it shows you the character of God. He gives good gifts And he also eliminates the things that plague us the most. He will destroy death. God, the Bible teaches, is good. God is benevolent. God is giving. Now, turn over to John chapter 2. Jesus came to earth. Jesus came, told people to repent, told people that he was now the king, demonstrated that God in human flesh is here to rule, and we start to see the effects of his ruling, see the effects of his kingdom. Now, what can you expect? Oh, he's probably going to take away all our pleasure. It's probably going to be harsh, and it's not going to be very enjoyable being under his rule. I mean, that's what God's like, right? Nope, I showed you from Isaiah 25, that's not the character of God. John 2 John tells us about a wedding that Jesus went to. On the third day, verse 1, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, okay, let's make sure we're on the same page here. Jesus goes to a wedding. The wine runs out. That's a problem. Jesus has all the pots filled with water. They taste it, and it's wine. Okay? So the master of the feast, the one in charge, goes to the groom. What's the deal here? Verse 10. Said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. So listen, it's not just that Jesus turned the water into wine. He turned it into the best wine. See that? Why did Jesus do that? Because he's God, and God is good, and God gives good gifts. That's why he did that. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And listen, what happened then? 
in doing that, he manifested his glory. He showed how great he was. So much so that his disciples trusted in him, believed in him. They believed in Jesus as good, a giver of good gifts. They were amazed at what he had done. Now, turn over to John chapter 4. You ever ask yourself, why does John tell us about Jesus turning water into wine? Nobody else tells us about that. Why does John include that? Let's look at chapter 4, verse 46. John 4, 46. Jesus. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Now, stop for a second. John's trying to remind us of something two chapters before. No phrase in the Bible is irrelevant. He's setting us up here. Hey, remember when, Gina, when Jesus was in Cana of Galilee? Remember when he turned the water into wine, the good wine? Okay, he's back there now where he turned the water into wine. Then he continues. Um, he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it. Jesus tells this man to go home. The man's servants come out to meet the man. And Jesus had told the man, your, your son's going to live. He's not going to die. The servants come out to meet the man, and they said, he's recovered. He didn't die. And the man inquires, when did this happen? Yesterday, about this time? That's when Jesus told me that he wouldn't die. What's John showing us? Isaiah 25 is happening. On this mountain, there will be a feast of good wine. And on this mountain, Jesus, the Messiah, will destroy death. Jesus comes, John tells us, this guy turned the water into the best wine. And then John tells us, this man halted death for this boy. Jesus is giving us an example of the goodness of God. He gave us that example when he came to earth. And we know that we're still living in a cursed world, but we are still able as his children to enjoy good gifts where one day we will enjoy them apart from the curse. Why? God is good. God is good. Friend, God is good. You live in Prescott for Pete's sake. God's good. God is good. You are going to eat lunch. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to enjoy the company of friends later today. Why? God's good. You get to work and you get to have the things you need. God's good. Do all these things come with hardship and difficulty? Sure. But God is good. He gives us good gifts. Now, Sandwiched in between John chapter 2 and John chapter 4 is John chapter 3. God loved the world in this way, that he gave. See the hand of God the Father stretching something out to you, and it's not wine. It's not a vacation. It's not a hike. It's not swimming in a lake. It's not, it's not this. You want to know God's love, the chief way he communicated his love? He gave his only son for you. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him, just like the disciples believed in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In the gospel of John, eternal life isn't just talking about length of time. It's talking about a quality, a satisfaction from life. Where is your satisfaction found? Not in learning all you can, not in all the pleasure you can find, not in not being stupid, not in leaving all your money to be used wisely forever. Your satisfaction is not there. It's to be found in the fact that God gave a son for you to bring you into eternal life with him. What a privilege to be the children of God. He's a good father, friends. Let's enjoy him. Let's pray. Father, take our eyes off of being satisfied with the world. Place them on you, your son, the fellowship we have with you, your son, the spirit. Satisfy us with who you are. Father, I, I'm praying that 
people here this morning would dive into their Bibles anew, that they would look for your character, they'd be satisfied with your character, they'd sing songs to you, they'd enjoy their prayer time, they'd enjoy fellowship they have with other believers, 